Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. The stylishly attired gentleman taking a turn around the upper deck greeted fellow passengers. Morning, Mr. Bassnett, Miss Bassnett. Good morning, Mr. Stuart Dawson. Dr. Parker. Morning, Mr. Stuart Dawson. In the weeks since leaving London, he had made the acquaintance, indeed sought the company of many. He'd been surprised to see how young they all were. Scarcely one of them looked over 40. Almost without exception, they were first-time voyagers like him, bound for a new life or seeking adventure in the colonies. As he took out his watch for the hundredth time, was he overplaying his hand? He reflected that despite any initial disappointment he may have felt at their relative youth and corresponding lack of means, the odds were that these mostly single people would prosper beyond their dreams in their new homeland. The things he had heard about Melbourne and Sydney back in the Liverpool public house and at the exchange, the torrent of money that had already poured in from just these two young cities. And it wasn't abating. Day after day, orders arrived in the post and by cable so that his workers hardly kept pace. Contrary to what some said, this was not too good to be true. His smile, as he saluted another promenading couple, was as much a reflection of his inner self-satisfaction as of his pleasure at the encounter. At the age of only 34, he was by any standard a rich man, a success in business, a maestro of the persuasive art, and he was on his way to conquer a continent. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm talking to Jeff Nadin about his book, Treasure House. It's the story of the Stuart Dawsons, watchmakers and jewellers, Australian pioneers of jazz age popular culture and entertainment, property tycoons and philanthropists. Jeff, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Nice to be here. Thanks very much, Greg. The story within Treasure House is one you stumbled upon, almost by accident, it seems. How did your interest in David Stewart Dawson begin? It began when my wife and I moved to the Blue Mountains, to Springwood, in uh, 2002, so that's 20 years ago. And we bought an old house, and we were just curious because it was an interesting house to see who had built it, who originally owned it. And uh, we actually drew, more or less drew a blank. There was a lady called Valerie Allison. We knew that she was buried in Springwood Cemetery and had died in 1918. And we left it at that. But we happened to be visiting an open garden a bit down the road. And there was a delightful old lady there um, called Wilma Leach Larkin. And uh, we were comparing notes about her beautiful garden and our overgrown plot. And she said, which is your house? And we described it. And she said, oh, that's the Stuart Dawson house. And we we said, no, I'm sorry. It's Valerie Allison was the owner of that. She said, no, no, it was David Stuart Dawson. Never heard of him. Uh, But she was getting on then. We're talking 20 years ago. And she was then in her 80s. And uh, she knew most of the history of the Stuart Dawsons. And she elaborated a little bit on the later years of the family, which was when it was all starting to fall apart. And we roused our curiosity to the point where we did some more digging. And it was from there that I, uh, 
I, I had no idea that I was going to write a book. It was just curiosity at that stage to make a few notes. Uh, but as the story developed and I learned more and more about this incredible family, uh, it turned into this book. Treasure House begins with a journey from Plymouth to Australia in the 1870s for the already successful businessman David Stuart Dawson. And I want to quote one of your very own questions. What was an undereducated Scots farm lad doing on the promenade deck of an ocean liner, a cabin all to himself, sporting a well-cut suit and all the accoutrements of a gentleman? Interesting question, isn't it? Um, this was a lad who had been born on a farm, a croft, actually, which is a, a tenant farm in uh, the Scottish Highlands in a little place called Cairney, which is so it's just a dot on the map. From an early age, he was very resilient and uh, creative and imaginative. To occupy his time, he built a stone wall around a vegetable garden just to keep himself occupied because he thought he'd help his mother. Everybody said he was a fool to do it, but he carried on. Uh, and it was here that he claims he coined his motto that he always had to go one better. When he was a teenager, as, he, as most young lads did then, uh, he had to move away from home, either to find work on another farm, or as was happening increasingly, we're talking now about the um, 1860s, uh, there was this mass movement because of the late Industrial Revolution from the country to the cities. So his first move was to Aberdeen, uh, and uh, he was, I think, a messenger boy there for some year or two, cut his teeth on learning how people were moved and worked in business. He had a brief stay in Edinburgh, not very long, uh, before moving to Glasgow. Now, Glasgow in the 18, late 1860s was a powerhouse. Shipbuilding, industry steelmaking, very active middle class in commerce. And he got a job as a draper's salesman. And basically it meant that he, he worked for the wholesalers. And so he went around uh, wholesale selling fabrics to draper's shops. They in turn would outsource that to outworkers, mostly women, of course, who would sew the garments at home. Um, so he very quickly learned a lot of uh, skills and, 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 and became very bold at uh, salesmanship. From there, he branched out so that by the time he was married, very young, at the age of 22, to his landlady's daughter in Scotland, his eyes were on a bigger prize, which was Liverpool in England. And uh, it was even more of a dynamic place because at that time, the port was expanding enormously to cater for Atlantic trade, new steamships and so forth. He thought he'd make his way in the same trade, drapery, but um, as it turned out, the competition was too fierce from there. But what he did learn was that Liverpool was a centre for watchmaking. And it was the same sort of model, business model. Lots of outworkers making individual components for watches that were then assembled using proprietary cases and badged. And where David's genius came in was that he realised that he could capitalise on a lot of emerging, if you like, technologies. And in the 1870s and early 80s, when he was in Liverpool, there was a lot of technology and, and especially in communications being developed. It started off with the railways, of course, communicating, and that was moving people very rapidly to, to the cities. That brought about a thing called railway time in 1840, where they had to synchronise all the clocks before then. Up and, the time was actually different in a place like Bristol, 
from what it was in London, but nobody cared, except when you had to coordinate railway timetables, suddenly it did matter. So suddenly there was more importance in, in being uh, prompt, punctual. That meant that watches were more important. He cottoned onto that. He also made use very quickly in Liverpool when he learned about the international trade that was going on with places like, especially Australia, where a lot of the goods were coming into Liverpool from, um, the International Telegraph. Now that had been introduced in 1872, or at least the last link to Australia had been put in in 1872. So he was able to capitalize on that by advertising and promoting goods in Australia, and people could actually send the orders in via the telegraph. Uh, so overcoming the tyranny of distance, mail, mail order catalogs and so forth. He took advantage of so many things to exploit the business he'd got into that within a couple of years, he was by today's standards, a millionaire. You really have to admire his ingenuity and his ability to capitalise on every opportunity, the, the bleeding edge of technology, as you put it. Uh, and that, as you say, begins with watches. And um, even at the early stages of reading this book, I, I began to wonder if Stuart Dawson, David Stuart Dawson, was a marketing genius or just a canny operator. Even in the construction of his business name, he seems to have put a lot of thought into the way he might present himself to the world. Yes, because uh, it's a good observation, Greg. Yeah, he, uh, he was actually christened David Dawson. The family name was just Dawson. There was no Stuart in it. Um, but um, he, he looked around, and if you, if you look at a lot of the business names, it was always somebody and somebody or a, a double-barreled name, which generally meant a partnership. But he was very much his own man. He was all of his life. In fact, probably that was his biggest strength and weakness. Uh, he hated delegating. He kept control right until well, his old age, really, uh, to the detriment of his business because his sons were never really brought in and embraced into the business the way you might expect them to. So what he did early on, he decided he had to have something that sounded more like a, a partnership. So he needed another name. The maternal side of his family was Stuart. So he thought, well, I'll just have Stuart and Dawson or something like this. And he coined Stuart Dawson. But it was at that time, it was supposed to mean two different people. But by the time he had his business cards printed and been around the traps a few times, people were calling him Mr. Stuart Dawson. And he thought, well, that'll do me. Let's talk for a moment about his personal life because uh, that forms quite a bit of the story of this book and his business and personal life are closely intertwined. He married a young 17-year-old called Margaret when he was in his 20s, but that wasn't really enough for him. Um, there was a series of affairs, I suppose. I mean, by this time, he was quite successful. Jenny Cohen is just one of them. And I wondered whether David Stuart Dawson's adulterous ways were a sign of things to come in his life. Very, very much, I think. He was very much um, a man who liked to keep control, as one of his daughters said. But he was also a man of his times. Um, uh, adultery uh, was far more common uh, than we maybe are led to believe. We think of Victorians as being very prim and proper, and on the surface they probably were. But gentlemen, and he considered himself a gentleman, were free to pretty well do what they liked. And I think there was a, the other side of it was that dear little Margaret was very much um, the quiet country girl. She actually came from the Orkney Islands originally and uh, had had a very secluded life with her mother 
uh, her widowed mother, um, and uh, wasn't at all worldly wise, never, in my opinion, really adapted to big city life. And David was out on the road all the time. So he parlayed his charms. He had lots of lots of trinkets to give away because even, even then he was getting into jewellery, not just watches. So any young lady that attracted his attention was easy prey. And as you will have seen from reading the book, it wasn't just one, he had several. And this, in fact, uh, put a stamp on his life to the point where, as you probably uh, remember, later in his life, when he was in his 70s, he was still having affairs. Let's move back to business. Stuart Dawson and company, he's crossed the Atlantic. Um, he's moved from catalogue and mail order sales, uh, and he's embraced retail in Sydney and other places in Australia. Let's talk about the flagship store in George Street, Sydney in the 1890s. Where did it sit in the pantheon of glittering retail, which included Mark Foy's, David Jones and Anthony Horton? It was considered uh, in its own field, probably the premier store that was written up on several occasions in the local press as being Sydney's Tiffany's. Again, he was very, very astute with his marketing. He nearly always, if he could possibly do it, picked a corner site for his shop so that he had double frontage. Even from the very earliest with um, his first Sydney store, he was taking advantage of, again, another newly introduced, if you like, technology, which was plate glass. With the invention of plate glass, suddenly you had enormous panes you could put in there safely. And not only window panes, but glass cases within the shops. Uh, and so the customers could come in and browse. You didn't just sort of come in and stand in the other side of a counter and wait for somebody to attend to you and pull something off a shelf behind. You could actually go and browse the goods. So um, he had this flair for, and not only for that, for decorating his shops. As I point out on several occasions, he actually commissioned local artists to paint friezes and ceilings with local scenes or decorative art, uh, which, again, attracted a lot of favourable publicity and customers. So, yes, amongst those, and he mixed, of course, with Foy and Hordens. In fact, later in life, a member of the Hordens family actually rented one of his properties. He also had uh, an impact in Melbourne and Melbourne's Swanston Street. What impact did that have on the city of Melbourne? His legacy um, in Melbourne was that he actually picked, if anything, better sites and some of the early mid-19th century buildings, um, especially after the gold rush, put a lot of money in there, uh, far outdid anything that Sydney had to offer at that time. Uh, by the turn of the 20th century, he'd actually purchased, he actually was a um, a commercial property owner in Melbourne before he was in Sydney. So the impact he had there was, uh, if anything, bigger uh, to the extent that he was able to, um, you know, get rent out of the rest of the building, the, the floors above his, while maintaining a very, very prominent presence on the ground floor of the, the block. There's so many things to cover in this book. Let's move back to Sydney for a moment and the ambassadors. It's the Ambassadors was one of many grand projects of the 1920s at a cost of £100,000 and was described as an entertainment mecca. It sounds like something ahead of its time. A modern wonder was described as and opened in 1924. What was that establishment like and what did that bring to Sydney and the Dawson family? Oh, Australia had never seen anything like it before. He modelled it on uh, European 
uh, venues. Uh, it was called a cabaret, but we tend to think of a cabaret as being a rather bijou, small place. This was grand. Um, it was in the basement of the Strand Arcade, a basement, by the way, that he largely excavated. It, well, there wasn't much of a basement before then. Today, it's JB Hi-Fi. I remark in the book, if you care to take a trip down into JB Hi-Fi sometime on the pretext of buying something, take a glance up at the ceiling around the, the stairwells and, and you will actually see remnants of the very ornate friezes that uh, David had put in for the ambassadors. But going back to what it was, it had a, it had a ballroom that could seat 700. It had uh, a palm court, which was uh, equally lavish. Um, and there were private rooms and, and uh, suites off the side. Of course, it couldn't have a bar because by this time the liquor laws had changed, but that didn't stop them serving liquor illegally, <laughs> as most people did, and getting raided frequently. Two or three times a week, there would be a, a ball or a celebration of some sort. He imported the best chefs from France and, and London. His maitre d', his first maitre d', was Romano. If you've heard of Romano's restaurant in Sydney, well, that's the guy. He was brought in by David Stewart Dawson. And uh, his orchestra that he had in, which was the Havana Jazz Band, uh, was um, probably one of the premier American jazz bands of, of, of the era. Uh, and incidentally, there is a film clip that's been preserved by the, the National Film Archives here in Australia uh, from a, a movie called The Cheetahs, which the McDonough sisters made in the late 20s. And part of that was shot in the ambassadors in the Palm Court. So if you want a glimpse of what it's like live, so to speak, <laughs> there it is. I want to talk about his second wife now, Harriet. Tell me about Harriet Dawson. Uh, yes, dear Harriet. Um, he met her in a pub in Liverpool when he was still married to his first wife, Margaret, and she, was one of, she became one of his mistresses. Dear old Margaret had taken him to the divorce court twice. One way or another, he managed to worm out of the actual divorce. She gave up on the first occasion. And the second occasion, she asked for a separation, a legal separation. Even that, he didn't grant her because he was too jealous of losing his control over his assets. But they came to an agreement that they would live apart and he would look after her. In fact, he did. He looked after Margaret financially very well for the rest of her life. But then he set up home with Harriet and very quickly had a family with her, four children. Now, Harriet was very worldly-wise in her own way. She'd learned a lot through kind of working in a pub with her father. She was a very warm-hearted woman, but uh, her fatal weakness, I think, was that she was so warm-hearted, she tended to indulge their children to a large extent. And this was the ruination of the family, in my view, because they never took control. They never wanted to take control. They just lived off the family fortune. And that brings us quite neatly to some of their offspring. Norman and Max's idea for opening a milk bar in Sydney's Martin Place and a plan for a milk bar empire, the black and white milk bars. Was it a grand folly or a brilliant idea? Mac was Hugh McIntosh. Some of your listeners may have heard of him. He was known as Huge Deal McIntosh. And he was a kind of Harry M. Miller of his day. He was a promoter and an entrepreneur, uh, an impresario, I should say. He owned the Tivoli Theatres. He owned the Sun newspaper. He was a politician in the upper house of New South Wales Parliament. He was everything. 
Uh, he was a pint-sized guy, but he was larger than life. The first milk bar in Martin Place was opened by a, um, a Greek chap, and it was an absolute roaring success. You have to remember this was when our version of prohibition was in full swing. And uh, Mick came up with this idea of, well, why don't we offer concoctions with milk? Uh, and he fitted the bar out in, a, in the, the latest Art Deco chrome and glass style. And it was an instant success, the one in Martin Place. And Mac, so it wasn't Mac's idea. Mac thought, well, I'm onto this. He was, he was bankrupt at the time, so again. So he was looking for an avenue. But he didn't have any capital, and he befriended the, the Stuart Dawson family, and Norman, who was the, the real wayward son, a complete playboy, drove around in Rolls Royces that his mother paid for and that sort of thing. And they got the idea, since Norman by this time was based in London, and he was based in London because he was running to escape his creditors, that they would tap into the Stuart Dawson fortune to get capital to open milk bars in London which they did, again, to great success. But Mac being Mac, uh, announced almost immediately he was going to open 400 of these milk bars. <laughs> Talk about ambition. Talk about ambition. And, uh, and, and still dipping into the Stuart Dawson pockets for, for capital. And this was against all the better judgment of Norman's older brother, Percy, who was in charge of the family estate after David died in 1932. But Norman uh, prevailed upon him and uh, Percy did some rather dodgy deals overriding perpetual trustees who were actually looking after the family estate to take money out of it and put it into the milk bar venture. I hesitate to ask this question, but was there eventually some crying over spilt milk? Oh, very much. Gallons of the stuff. <laughs> Gallons of it. Uh, yeah, I forget what the total number was at them. I think it was about 15 or 16, and they were just about to open one in Paris, of all places, when uh, the, the cash flow was just wasn't enough to sustain the, the business, and it collapsed spectacularly, and uh, they lost a lot. My final question to you, Jeff, is uh, about the legacy of the Stuart Dawson family, uh, both in physical terms and they were great philanthropists as well. What is the legacy of the Stuart Dawson family? Difficult to say. It, it persists in New Zealand and those stores are still there today. No stores survive in Australia. There's a romantic cachet around the name Stuart Dawson in New Zealand because of the associations with diamond rings for engagements and those sorts of things. Here in Australia, very little to, to speak of. I mean, one of the sad things I, I observe is that um, the house that, uh, that the Stuart Dawson's owned was at, at Potts Point, which had been uh, Sir James Martin's house originally, Clarence. David bought it as a wedding present for Harriet when he finally married her. In the gardens of that, which had been developed by Martin, where a lot, there was a lot of uh, Greek and Roman statuary. And including in that was this uh, monument to Lysicrates, a Greek god of athletics, I think it is, uh, sort of rotunda-looking thing. When the house was taken over by the Navy in the Second World War and actually demolished, which was a criminal thing to do, of course, there was a bit of a rescue effort to see what could be taken out of the gardens there. And one of the things that came out of it was this monument. And it now sits in the Botanic Gardens on Farm Cove. Now, that 
Berry Monument is the one that several years before the city decided to rescue it, Harriet had offered as a gift to the city, knowing that the house was going to be demolished as a memorial to her husband. Why? Because he'd seen the monument. There's, there are plenty of them around, and there's one in, prominently in Edinburgh, where he lived for some time. And she was very rudely rebuffed by the city fathers. But the monument stands there today with no recognition whatsoever of her attempt to gift it to the city, which I think is a shame. Jeff, it's been wonderful of you to share this story. A real slice of Australian history. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking to Jeff Nadin about his book, Treasure House. It's published by Moshpit, and you can find it at goodreadymagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadymagazine.com.au. 